the beat, people hands up Everybody in the place stand up And jump and shake and rush the club Till the whole entire building is rammed up And there's nothing you can do to hold them off And while the beautiful women be showing off We about to cause a riot in this beach Till we hearing the fire alarms going off You gotta watch it <laughs> Do we really got them on a trance? Welcome to another 3 podcast. This is Scott Phillips, and I'm joined by Malcolm Gordon. Uh, and Malcolm, just for those who don't know, you are the... I am the Assistant Director of Debate at UMKC, and I debated at UMKC uh, until 2007 when I graduated. And you have, do you have an institute this summer you want to plug as long as we're talking about that? Uh, UMKC does have a camp. They have a two- and a three-week program, and I believe it's July 10th through the 30th. So, you really came prepared for this. Uh, <laughs> I believe we have a camp that may or may not be during the summer. Uh, yeah, you know, if any kids from Kansas, Missouri, it's a very popular draw for debaters from those regions for obvious reasons. Those obvious reasons being your charming good looks. <laughs> Actually, I do not teach at that camp. I teach at Gonzaga Debate Institute. So I'm I have now officially plugged two camps in one podcast. That's okay. I'll edit all this out. <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt. Uh, all right. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about was some uh, topicality-related issues. Uh, you and I judged two debates together at the NDT uh, where both teams didn't fill out a very good strike sheet, and uh, the debates were about topicality. Uh, only one of those was about a, was a new AF. Am I correct in that, the, the uh, semis? Yes, the semifinals was a new AF. I believe that, that the team round eight had been running that AF most of the year. Um, so I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, I thought in both debates the NAG had kind of basically read some definition cards that were pretty willy-nilly. They didn't clearly make an argument uh, as much as the NAG just kind of like decided what they wanted them to say and then kind of argued based on that. Would you agree? Uh, to a large extent, uh, I would say, especially the earlier one, I thought that the semifinals round, I thought the cards were – they obviously had to take definitions from different places to make their interpretation. There wasn't just one card that explicitly said it, but I thought theirs were a little bit closer. They were at least in the context of the resolution uh, and about, you know, about the mechanism the F used. So, but but yeah, I would agree. I would agree that generally, not, neither of them had a card that is just like, you know, the money interpretation that provides the exclusive definition, et cetera, et cetera. So if you were an AF team then getting ready for the TOC and you thought that you were going to debate kind of similar T arguments, which I feel like especially in high school, um, people who are just kind of like, you know, marginally technically proficient on the nag can just get away with murder of like writing some decent T blocks and then reading them and the AF kind of folds. What kind of arguments would you make um, to counter these kind of T arguments that don't really have a solid evidentiary basis, but the way they're explained kind of makes some logical sense or at least have a decent story for why they would be a fair or reasonable limit. Uh, yeah, that's always always an issue when you go to tournaments at the end of the year. And on the on the flip side, it's easy for the neg to prepare because they can guess if there are going to be new apps on the topic. Here's what they're probably you know going to have to do. Um, kind of like with the visas topic in college. You knew if you were debating a new AF that it was probably going to be an AF that was like country specific in some way or industry specific. I think the first thing you want to do is what you said, which is prepare a set of arguments about why arbitrary interpretations are bad. And usually 
the um, usually the negative is running impact arguments about predictability and limits you know, related to the scope of the resolution. Uh, I think that a lot of times the affirmatives forget to talk about how predictability is something that cuts both ways, that it's not just something that the the negative gets, that the affirmative also gets. You know, uh, They have to be able to predict their ground when the resolution is announced, and that's just kind of another fancy way of a literature checks abuse kind of argument that the, the AF cases are inevitably guided by the literature. But I think that when you talk about it in the context of an arbitrary interpretation, it kind of becomes a a devastating reason why the judge really has no right to vote against the F just because the negative came up with with an idea um, that might provide better limits for debate, but is completely unpredictable for uh, teams to access prior to a round happening because it's not grounded in the literature. Yeah, I think a good way of explaining that, I think, is that there's a difference between the predictability provided by a definition and the predictability of a definition. So, like, a lot of times a government definition of, you know, at least, like, eligibility was, like, a big word that was debated a lot on the visa topic, uh, or I think For in social, high school. Social services in high school, uh, not this season, obviously, but season before. And this season. <laughs> Military presence uh, is is a big one. Yeah, I think, you know, if you at least have, uh, you know, so like a government definition, no matter what other definition you debate, that they read against you when you're AF, as long as you have like a set of arguments for why that government definition is more predictable in that sense, I think then you're kind of prepared with always kind of like one size fits all offense. Uh, I mean, I don't know, I guess like I'm, I'm maybe less prone than others to just to say like government definition rules them all. But I think that, I think that uh, that's true a lot of times, but man, just the visas topic alone, you have so many different, uh, definitions that are government definitions in the sense that a federal court you know has interpreted what these words mean in the context of the statute a lot of those i thought were conflicting so i think even sometimes when you use the government definition you're open to a lot of different interpretations yeah i think i mean a lot of times what exactly is the quote-unquote government definition is there's a pretty fast and loose play with that like the district court of idaho defined yeah the oh that's actually in 1837 true. and so this is the government definition and this is all something that affirmatives should keep in mind when they hear these t arguments is that you always have to make sure that the definition that the negative uh, has provided, it's usually going to be contextual. Make sure it's in the right context. And uh, what I mean is make make sure that it's actually talking about the similar mechanisms and problem areas that the AF is dealing with. Uh, I definitely think that a lot of times teams on both sides don't do a good enough job in cross-examination of actually looking at the evidence and saying, um, this is not actually talking about you know a military situation or i've i've judged debates where teams were reading contextual cards but they're talking about other countries um you know and it's never been pointed out in cross examination so that's a useful uh i think that's a tactic the af has to deploy when they debate these arguments is make sure that you're attacking it fast in the cross examination get the evidence out there for the judge earlier so that they're piecing together less of the T debate after the 2AR, which I think happens a lot in topicality debates. I don't know if that's your experience when you judge or when you're on panels, but it seems like it's one 
um, argument type of the negative that, you know, the judges tend to have to do a lot of the lining up at the end of the debate. Well, yeah, I'd say two things about that. One is I, a lot of people, I think, like it when the nag goes for tea and reads like 25 tea cards. <laughs> I'm just like immediately suspicious whenever that happens. I <laughs> know. Yeah. If you need 25 cards to assemble your tea argument, I'm just – it just in my gut, I'm like, this is shady. But then second, you know, a lot of times after these debates, the two on R will only talk about like one or two of those cards. And I see a lot of other judges like, oh, can I see all 25 T cards that you read at some point in the debate and just kind of reading them? And... Yep. Yeah. Well, that's true. But T, well, T cards are so short. Judges don't mind being like, all right, I'll go ahead and read every T card you read in the round because it's only going to take the judge some total of 45 seconds to read all 10 of the cards, you know? Yeah, that's definitely true. But I guess I just think that if you're t- if you read like a string of evidence to support a T argument that's all from different contexts, to me that's not really an argument if that makes sense. So yeah. like I saw like kind of an eligibility debate where it was it was basically, you know, is it the state department website that defines eligibility or is it kind of like lawyers who work in immigration law? who get to define, you know, what is eligibility. And so basically the team that said, like, lawyers should define it, they had a string of cards that were, like, one said X, and then another was, like, X is comparable to Y, and then another that was, like, Y is comparable to Z. And it was just, like, that's not a definition. Like, those people aren't saying this is what a word means. They're just saying they're just, like, making equivalences, if that makes sense. And so I don't really think that those kind of T arguments are persuasive to me at all if the F is just, like, we have a definition. It may not be great for debate, but it is actually a definition, not just some contextual stuff that it uses words next to other words in the topic. I I agree that that's a that's generally my frame for evaluating a lot of these interpretations. But there are some times where, um, and I think the semifinals debate would be a good example because the definitions weren't excellent. Um, but they were they did have the key ones that were in the context of immigration um that was an example and and I, there's been a few topics like this where the interpretation it's you know it's a little it's a little coddled like you're talking about um but on the other hand it's also it doesn't seem that arbitrary like it's such a logical and straightforward uh interpretation that it doesn't really seem that unpredictable or I guess what I'm really saying here is that sometimes the impacts for the negative of the interpretation are so big because the interpretation that the AF has presented is so un- unlimiting and unpredictable that even if the negative's interpretation is kind of arbitrary, uh, you know, that's a big gray area sometimes. And sometimes I think that the, the impact of the neg arguments just kind of outweigh any degree that the AF might be winning that – their definition is better if their definition sucks bad enough. Well, if you were F, I mean, how would you set up that impact framing if you had to essentially win that an arbitrary definition that provided a really good, fair, you know, limited topic? Like if you had to say that just the fact that that definition was kind of made up outweighed that, I mean, other than just it's not predictable for the F, do you think there are other good impacts to that? Well, I think a lot of this gets back to more fundamental T, T debating which is just the generic frame that the the neg obviously has to win 
um, to win, have any hope of winning a T debate like that. They have to win competing interpretations. And I think a lot of this is related to the fundamental problems that affirmatives have in distinguishing between competing interpretations and reasonability in a meaningful way. Because uh, I judged another T debate at the NDT in the, in the prelims on uh, day two, I think. And, um, you know, it's kind of what I was saying to this team is that it was a debate that came down to the issue. The AF wound up losing it. Um, I think that you have to set the impact framing up to say that the key to reasonability, the, the problem with competing interpretations isn't just that the negative can set their own limits and it's arbitrary, et cetera, all the things that we've been talking about. Uh, it's also that competing interpretations gives the negative an unfair advantage and that it forces the judge to ignore reality and imagine debate if everyone were debating the exact same way. Like this interpretation would be great for debate, but that rests on the assumption that you should imagine that everyone in debate would use this interpretation. Whereas reasonability says that, um, you know, we're going to look at the reality of the situation. Would is it possible to have a debate against this affirmative about the core issues of the resolution? And, uh, you know, a lot of times when I judge those, those debates about is it competing interpretations or reasonability, uh, AFs never really get that in depth. They just say, oh, it's arbitrary and encourages judge intervention, et cetera. But I really think that the impacts of the negative argument can oftentimes be minimized by the AF, uh, if they just sort of expose that disconnect where the problem with this interpretation is that if it's arbitrary, then it can never actually be universalized. And that's how the negative uh, actually accesses all of their limits and predictability impacts, et cetera, et cetera, is the assumption that other people could reasonably uh, – could predict it. Um, does that make sense that for the negative to win, com the impact to competing interpretations, all these limits, predictability impacts, they have to – they're fundamentally assuming that everyone in debate could or would debate under that interpretation. And if it's not predictable, if it's arbitrary, then that, you know, that's just not true. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think, you know, particularly with a lot of the fairness and ground kind of impacts that people tie to limits, you know, in that debate that we saw, um, there were the two and R kind of didn't have as much of that, but in earlier speeches and particularly, um, the, I think in the Kansas debate too, and a lot of ground claims just revolve around like whether or not a, a vision of the topic is good for debating like politics or like direction of immigration dissents as being the core negative ground. I think if the majority of the teams, you know, if that's not their central negative argument, then it's less relevant if that vision of the topic is good for those arguments. That's not really an argument I see the AF make very often. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The AF, oftentimes the AF just never questions the premise that the negative is really operating on, which is that uh, everyone in debate, uh, this is uh, what our impact is, is if everyone debate debated this way. And, you know, if when the when the interpretation is arbitrary, the F just is to be like, you can't give them all, you can't give them full weight of their standards because if it's not a predictable or if it's an arbitrary interpretation, there's no way that we can predict that everyone would debate this way. It's not a safe impact calculus. Um and then the other thing I think that the AF needs to do is provide the case list for your interpretation because too often the debate is about everything that is on the fringe that the AF would allow because that's obviously what the negative wants to talk about. 
They want to take it to the extreme as fast as they can. Talk about all the fringe elements of the AFS interpretation. Too often I see AFS get involved in engaging in those debates and less of just providing the case list and the core arguments and being like, you know, these are the AFS that people act under this interpretation, even if it's true to the negative that these other AFS might be possible. Usually other words check a lot of the crazy examples the negative give, but that's a different argument. But even if it might be possible that these fringe elements happen, uh, you know, under our interpretation, we preserve this core stuff. And if you actually look at the case list for the TOC, uh, all this stuff that we preserve is the stuff that people have actually been debating all year. And that's that's what you should pr- uh, put your preference on. Yeah, and it seems like no matter what interpretation people decide on, there's going to be dumb fringe cases. Like, Yeah. There's always. never been an interpretation that actually eliminated that. I never see the AF kind of counter those, especially in, like, size debates. A lot of times the NAG will be like, oh, you could withdraw one person. Oh, God. But, like, there are just as many arbitrary groupings of 25%. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And uh, that's that's often missed. Affirmatives too often engage in just let you know defending that things wouldn't be as bad on the fringe as the negative says instead of just defending that if you're already making reasonability arguments which you have to be if you're f then it also follows that your impact arguments in favor of your interpretation you should be going for are all the educational benefits that it solves the you know the core educational questions of the topic and and why that's enough um but again a, a lot of that gets back to impact framing because what we're talking about the negative doing is very similar to uh, the way that people view T in competing interpretations, which is that it's kind of like a counter plan that solves, you know, most of the F and has this net benefit. Um, I'm getting not... really sick of people comparing one argument to another. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, our K is just like a counter plan in a DA. I feel like they just do that when they can't really explain what they want to say using the language of T. Right. It's like you're... It's, it's like I'm the, I've already debated through college. I've seen more than you inevitably because I've been around longer. Why are you trying to dumb the argument down for me? It sounds like you're dumbing the argument down for yourself. <laughs> uh, I definitely get that a lot, though, especially on T. It's just like a counter plan that solves all the F and has a net benefit. It's like, uh, yeah, a more arbitrary and artificial net benefit than than even like a console counter plan sometimes. Um, the last thing I, I kind of wanted to talk about for T is that how viable do you think going for T arguments is in high school at a tournament like the TOC, like particularly against new AFs? Well, you know, I uh, the TOC is so weird because the judging pool is uh, seems a lot different. Uh, I don't think I'm going this year, actually. This will be the first one I've missed in a while. Um, but it, it tends to have a lot more uh, higher influx of college judges. And uh, usually they don't have quite as much so – a lot of them don't have as much experience on the topic. You know, they ju- they are more involved with college debate than high school, obviously. Um, I think – I don't know. It's hard to predict. I think a lot of it kind of depends on the judge you had. Like if I were to go into uh, a tournament, you know, like the TOC, having not judged in high school, I, I probably still wouldn't hesitate to – pull the trigger if I just thought that the F mechanically was behind on an interpretation um, and stuff like that. I feel like you're kind of the same way in that 
Um, but some people judge topicality at the end of the year different than they do at the beginning of the year. You, you know, I'm, I'm sure you experienced that when you debated that it changes over time. And so I think people who are more in the high school circuit, I think the AF and the NAG both need to be in tune of what the current trend is in high school, like what kinds of AFs have been been people have been breaking at the higher competitive level and have they been successful in defending that they're topical. Um, but if you have judges who, um, who haven't debated on the topic much, then I think you should probably remember a lot of the interpretations you were winning on at the beginning of the year, and maybe dust off the, the interpretation and the block extensions and don't be afraid to go for those again, because your judge, there's no judge fatigue, if you will. They're not. They haven't heard that argument. They're not tired of evaluating it or voting on it. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> at least when I was in high school, and like pretty much, although it was starting to go away towards the end of when I was in college, there was a lot of like at the end of the year, you can't win on T, you can't win on theory, blah blah blah, kind of well, like nonsense. Especially if you think about it, um, when you're talking about. The last tournament of the year, people's careers on the line. There is, in a lot of people, you know, a hesitancy to, to vote on, you know, a cheap shot or something like that, if it's such an important round and it's a, the, potentially the last round that a, an accomplished debater has. Yeah, I think there's less of that in high school, um, <laughs> especially at the TOC, and I think that's because. A lot of the younger college judges honestly aren't as emotionally aware as maybe like older coaches who judge debates at the NDT. Like I highly doubt a lot of the kind of people judging at the TOC who don't go to most high school tournaments are really that worried about any oh, yeah. careers. Yeah, that's that's true. That's a good point. But I think that it, the pendulum has really swung in the last couple of years in that I think a lot of debates at the end of the year are getting decided on T. And I think theory is also a lot more viable than people would have kind of previously guessed. Um, although obviously, you know, there are still the kind of like judge holdouts who just like think conditionality bad is an insult and an unwinnable argument and whatnot, but <laughs> I might be considered one of those. Really? I don't, you, this is like one of those things you say that you don't really believe in. I'm pretty sure. No, I like, like you wouldn't vote on tyranny outweighs T. Uh, I would have, I mean, as long as the affirmative, or the negative just acknowledged the existence of tyranny outweigh. They don't even have to answer it. As long as they just would have pointed out to me that they were aware that the other team had said that and then moved on, I probably would have been satisfied. Um, but if the nag reads like three conditional picks, you're not conditionality bad's a non starter for you? Um well, intersections of theory arguments I'm much more compelled but so conditional picks bad? Uh, is better for me than just generically any and all conditionality is bad. And also, I am m much more willing to vote on fiat abuse arguments than most judges, um, which is probably, you know, why in front of me when you debate conditionality, you should probably point out the nature of the counterplans that are being run conditionally, um, like international fiat, uh, agent fiat, multi-actor fiat. I, you know, most teams don't go for them. And a lot of teams that would go for them on the line by line, they're they're pretty far behind. But those are arguments that I am willing to vote on and that I have voted on before. But conditionality generically, no, I, I pretty much like conditionality. Well, let me segue that into one thing that I haven't, I didn't really see this as much in college, but like at every high school tournament I go to, I see this like five times. 
which is the nag reads like a conditional CP and a reps K and the AF makes like a big fuss about you read something that contradicts the reps K. If you can kick discourse, why can't we kick discourse? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, this seems to be like a lot of teams like strategy, like they either go for this as a theory argument or as like a justification for the permutation. And maybe it's just like when I, the era in which I grew up, the whole like performative contradiction argument was kind of a non-starter, but I just find this completely non-persuasive. Uh, I agree completely. Um, if to me it's an example of an argument that the teams both link to, it's not really a kind of a double turn that you can exploit. The neg links just as much as the AF. The difference is that the AF is AF and they're stuck with what they advocated in the 1AC through the whole debate, whereas the neg has a counter plan and they can kick it if they want to. I mean, it's just a, fa- it's really a fancy way of saying that, uh, conditionality is bad, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. They're like, if the neg can do something, (laughs) we should get to do it. But the key part of that is if the neg. Yeah, no, it's It's like like, if the neg gets the block, we should get the block. (laughs) It's like, well, no. Uh, I agree. You know what? I've, I want to say one more thing about the, well, this, this is related, a conditionality thing. I've set out a couple of times this year on the bottom of a 2-1 where the other two judges voted on uh, conditionality bad. And this is the scenario both times, essentially the same scenario. Let, let me get your opinion on this. The neg reads uh, two conditional counterplans and a conditional critique. The AF says uh, conditionality bad, and their interpretation is that you only get one counterplan and uh, one critique. The neg never answers the counterinterpretation. They just say that conditionality is good in all instances. Um, and they're crushing the F on this. Twice I've set out because the other two judges have voted on the neg doesn't have a counterinterpretation, which means that the neg is stuck defending an infinite number of counterplans will be read <laughs> in the one in C. Therefore, even though the neg is beating them on all of the reasons why conditionality is good, they have no counterinterpretation and thus lose the debate. And then their recommendation to the neg every time is, of course, to make what counterinterpretation do you think? Just say that however many you read in the debate is the, the legitimate number in the counterinterpretation. So the neg should say counterinterpretation for counterplans, you know, if they read four. Uh, and that would have been compelling enough for the judges to vote the other way. Um, what, what do you think about that? Okay, I am totally with you. I cannot even explain to you <laughs> how asinine I think this must have a counterinterpretation kind of logic is. But if I could even like, uh, like, I, I've been involved in LD a little bit the last couple of years, and literally, you know, not like I would, I would definitely say not the like top tier LDers, but kind of the like the people who would be like mediocre, like get to the doubles but lose kind of policy people. They have taken the idea that you need a counterinterpretation for everything to such, like, if they make a theory argument, they'll have, like, five interpretations. And if you only make four counterinterpretations, it's, like, over. <laughs> it's, like, oh, conceded one interpretation. Your other four, it's, it's like, ridiculous. <laughs> that is that is ridiculous. And the, just the, to, for a judge to tell the negative team that I would have voted for you had you made this completely arbitrary and self-serving counterinterpretation. Uh, I'm sorry, but if conditionality is good, then conditionality is good. It doesn't re- – the counterinterpretations really doesn't do anything for the negative. I mean they would all be arbitrary. 
Yeah, I mean, I just think that, like, so many of these kind of, like, little ticky-tack arguments, maybe it's just that we're getting old, but it's like, <laughs> if, the, if the if the AF makes the argument the one hour like, pre-round conditionality solves. Oh, my God. To me, if the neg, <laughs> if the neg makes arguments that are clearly not solved, like, if they say we need flexibility in the debate, to me, that is an explained answer to the idea that pre-round they could solve. But I've seen a lot of judges be like, well, you dropped pre-round solved. So even though the only offense you went for are arguments about why you need flexibility in the debate, pre-round. And I'm just yeah. like, what? Yeah, that's very similar to the, the scenario that I just described. I don't I don't really think – I mean, it's probably a good part of it is that we're getting old. But really it's just that I will say in all – Everyone of, else is stupid. <laughs> no, no, no. In, in the rounds – that I was referencing, um, you know, the judges were near my age or maybe a few years younger. So maybe it is an age thing. And most judges are bad, let's be honest. Um, there's plenty of people that probably think we're both terrible judges. But um, I just – it's it's just so insulting, you know, to the other team where it's like, do you know why they never said that? Because they thought you were smart enough to understand that every single thing that they were saying was an obvious answer to it. Uh, th- those decisions always frustrate me. I, I think a lot of I don't I don't understand it. Um, I just don't understand that sometimes you know the difference in perception that people can have on things like theory arguments. Yeah, I mean, I guess to like a certain extent, <clears throat> I would understand like you should specifically apply your argument to the like whatever. But when it's like cut and dry, like and it's theory round, arguments it's in round. It seems like that's not – that requiring the debaters to say that makes the debate worse. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, theory arguments especially. You know, counterplants, all the other mainstay arguments, I totally understand the necessity of being – of sometimes being really, really stringent on making sure the negative says the exact right, you know, cross-application exactly how you want it in some places. But a theory argument – I mean, come on. Let's be honest. I don't care what your theory argument is. In the end, you're saying a bunch of crap to support like three things. <laughs> so the idea that that there needs to be that ultra hyper explicit cross application on a theory debate is just so I, – it's asinine is a good word to describe it. All right. Well, let's move I, – I think we've kind of just beat into the ground from like boring <laughs> theory conversation. True. Um, I guess one other thing that I wanted to talk about kind of based on what I saw at the NDT is that it it seems to me that the like era of impact turning stuff is like officially over and that it seemed like on the ag and the nuke topic, there was like a pretty large amount of like prolif, good, bad, free trade, good, bad, kind of da, da, da. But at the NDT, I either judged or scouted a lot of rounds where teams broke you know, quote unquote, new AFs, either totally new or a different team had been running it from another school and they kind of stole it. That link that just had generic advantages that had been run like the econ advantage that had been run the whole topic by everyone. And then we're winning because the nag just kind of went for politics and the AF was more prepared on that. And it just seems like in that particular instance, the best thing you can do on the nag is just be ready to impact turn things like growth or hegemony. Yeah. We, we had, I believe we talked about this, didn't we, outside of during the Sims debate? Um, 
I, I agree. The new F, I, I think that you're a fool if you don't, if you debate a new F, especially, you know, at the end of the year when the rounds really matter, um, you should, you should impact Terran in the one and C. Uh, give them an out on, you know, maybe on one of the advantages if you're impact turning multiple advantages, cause they'll probably kick it if you only give them an out on one and you impact turn the other a lot. Um, and read your counterplan and your politics to said you have to think that when someone is breaking a new F, there are two sets of arguments that they're most prepared to deal with. The first, well, aside from defending topicality, obviously, the first is politics. If it's a strategic team and they're breaking a new F, it's probably because they have good no link or link turn cards to answer your politics, DA. And the second is uh, the counterplan. Whatever the topic counterplan or your preferred topic counterplan is, they've probably got good answers to that. Impact turning the advantages is great because when they bust those solvency deficits out to the counterplan, you can just concede that you don't solve whichever advantage it is they say you don't solve and go for your impact turns. It gives you another strategic option. Even if you're a debater who prefers a counterplan, it gives you another potential net benefit. Uh, assuming that the other team is strategic. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, when teams break those apps, they, you know, there, there are a lot of instances where they do have the goods on politics and that might not be a net benefit you can go for. Um, so I think it's really important against new apps to have your one and C shells ready for two or three different solid impact turn scenarios and be ready to go for it in the block. If you have a block that's a counter plan that solves two of the three advantages, and then the other half of the 2 and C is impact turning the advantage that you don't solve, which is now a net benefit to the counter plan. And then the one in R is a politics disad. Um, I, you know, you've got to feel pretty good if you're well prepared on those arguments uh, after the block. Yeah, I mean, I think what you just said about making impact turns a net benefit is something people don't really consider a lot. Um, I know on the the energy topic, we used to go for like basically a delegation style counter plan. Uh, frequently, and a lot of teams would say that kind of like soft power was a, an advantage that it didn't solve for because I guess like executive agencies aren't perceived internationally or whatever. But that's like great because then you didn't need to win any of your other net benefits. Yeah. You could just read like one soft power impact turn and the one NC. And then when they said that the counterplan didn't solve that and that was like their focal point, they spent like a bunch of time winning that it didn't solve it. You could just concede that and then just unload on soft power bad for like eight minutes. Or if, uh, I mean, I would, I would recommend putting it in the one and C, but I've been in similar situations where, uh, 2AC add on that the counter plan doesn't solve. Actually, I remember debating Klinger and Tarloff where my partner read a free trade add on as a uh, DA to the counter plan and which proceeded, you know, they proceeded to impact turn for five and a half minutes of the block. Um, and now it was like, even if we were ahead on politics, the two and R had the option of kicking it <laughs> and just going for impact turning this add on that the counter plan doesn't solve. Um, yeah, reading a new AF and then reading a two AC add on to a generic impact that people are likely ready to be able to turn is just a colossal blunder, I feel. Yes, and if you're AF, you should, if you're going to read the generic impact when you break your new AF, don't just read the meat in nine card or, you know, whatever it is you're going to read uh, and move on or the call set card, you know, re- read your uniqueness, hedge sustainable, et cetera, et cetera, you know, get all, get that all out there in the one AC just, just in case. 
Yeah, definitely. If you're gonna, if you have to read a generic advantage like that, it should be in the one AC and it should be well defended. Yes, um, totally agree. Uh, to get back to your original point, though, I, I do think that I, I don't think the impact turns completely go. I mean, the finals of the NDT, I believe there was some D dev action in there somewhere. I didn't watch the debate, but um, yeah, so that's at least a prominent example. But uh, I do think that in general, people prefer the counter plan. Or it seems to me the strategy that's been resurging is the politics with the case defense. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't understand reading a bunch of impact defense being better than reading impact turns. Uh, well, I think it's because the impact turns require a lot of extra work on the comparison of, you know, because of all the comparison. Whereas the defense is find a warrant that the one AR didn't answer, extend that card. Um, you know, assert that it takes it out and then go for your politics to set. It's it's kind of like why the counter plan, you know, is so popular because it's easier to explain how your counter plan solves internal links than it is to make a lot of impact comparisons. Um, it, you know, I think a lot of negatives feel like it's more, it's a more predictable 2AR when you're going for the counter plan and just explaining how it solves internal links or impact defense versus impact turns where, you know, the AF is going to be making a lot of, a lot of comparisons and they're probably going to get away with some new comparisons in the two AR. I definitely agree with you on the counter plan, but impact defense, I think is you're correct in a world where the AF has like a limited number of impacts, but nowadays the oh, AF yeah, generally reads like 20 stupid impacts. So you have to go for so many different, that's a good impact defense arguments that I think it's like diminishing returns. That's a good point. And the number of impacts that, that there are to politics disads, politics disad impacts tend to be pretty generic. It's either a regional war, uh, or it's some big generic thing like econ, free trade, hegemony. Um, and a lot of times you'll run into the problem where the AF has an impact that's the same as yours. You're both reading edge impacts. Um, so I, I think that the AF having a lot makes it, uh, inconvenient. I never went for that strategy when I debated uh, for the negative to go for impact defense. Well, you never went for the not. <laughs> and I also think that a lot of times the impact defense you read, you know, a lot of times the warrants might apply to more than just the impact that you're reading it against. You know, and the best example would be like some jackass reading no great power war in the, uh, you know, as an answer to the case while going for that impact on the neg, obviously that's a pretty explicit, but I do think that a lot of like the no terrorism or no escalation kind of impact defense arguments, a lot of times the warrants in those, if the AF is real picky about it, they're going to be able to point out that they probably apply to the negative impact as well. Yeah, definitely, especially for a lot of regional conflicts, people read like deterrence checks. Yeah. So it's like India-Pakistan deterrence checks now extend our U.S.-Russia nuke war impact. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, yeah, that's a no. <laughs> yeah, that's a common one uh, for sure. And now there's these cards from this study, I guess, that was done last year, the year before the the those new computer simulations that say that the India-Pakistan nuclear war would would cause extinction. Um, so now it's just like any regional war. <laughs> If the if the if the debaters want to bring the cards in, that just pretty much any war you can now argue escalates and kills everyone. 
Yeah, I think that I, one of the things that frustrates me about impact calculus like that, though, is that the idea that, you know, it's whether or not you have a card that says something causes extinction, that being like a huge factor in the decision generally is like silly. To me. Oh, I, I, I am with you there as well. Um, I don't, I rare, the majority, I, I mean, the majority of cards that we read for extinction are not making an extinction argument. It's like just the baseline, like. Yeah. It'll just say like, uh, this could hurt mankind or, you know, mankind will live in fear. Humankind. Sorry. Um, I think that I just kind of assume that every impact is extinction at this point. I'm not going to lie. I vote on probability and who solves the internal link to their impact to the, the, a greater degree. Uh, because usually the magnitude is is virtually identical on both sides because it's so underdeveloped. To me, to me, the place where the impact debates are won and lost in front of me are, um, you know, who has the stronger internal link, and um, because that obviously affects the probability. And so, which where's the threshold? Well, that's for me where an instance where I think that impact defense is good, but reading evidence on it is often stupid. So, like, if the NAG reads the Korea politics DA and reads that stupid, like, Funga Mwongo Africa Times card that's, like, North Korea will scorch the earth. Oh, yeah. Extinction. Africa Times if the, if, Yeah, if the other team is just like, nope. <laughs> In my mind, that's equivalent of reading, like, a really good impact defense card that North Korea can, in fact, not wipe out the globe. Uh, yes, and, but the other flip side of that, though, is that it's entirely judge-dependent. Um, well, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, I agree, but, you know, there's still a lot of judges out there who are of the, if there's no evidence, it doesn't matter. Um, but the flip side of that is that usually those judges also don't care how bad your evidence is, so <laughs> you could just go ahead and read anything and assert that it says it, and that's probably good enough. Uh, there was too many flip sides. I don't know what <laughs> side we're on now. I couldn't keep track. I think it was just a double, so that's not that bad. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Well, let's this word. We've already got like 40 minutes in here. Let's transition to the the framework discussion. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, given that you've been slaving away on a dissertation length article. <laughs> Uh, to rebut my previous framework post. <laughs> it's not really a rebut, uh, necessarily. Uh, Honestly, at this point, I don't even remember what my article said that you wanted to argue against. It was so long ago that you were allegedly <laughs> writing this article. I know. it's. I'm a terrible and shameful person. It's so much easier to talk, though, right? Yeah, but can you, just like for the, you know, listeners at home who... All you know, they play video games and whatnot. They have the attention span of a sparrow. What what, what was it that I said? Uh, it's your post that from. It's called "Going for Framework on the AF is Hip to Be Square Part One." For oh yeah, that if the nag has like an absurd framework, you just got to do it, even though it's right. Sucks. And you know, and a lot of your examples actually, I think, kind of speak to what we've been talking about. Where a lot of times, I, I guess, I'll start with roll of the ballot because the main thing that. And we've, we've actually converge on this. How, how we agree on so many things is just beyond me. I think it's because we're both old, fat, and bitter. Um, but who are you calling bitter? <laughs> me. Uh, you're, you're jolly. Um, so I'll start with your, your roll of the ballot stuff. And like I said, this gets back to a lot of what we were talking about before and that your problem was that the negative often makes just wholly arbitrary. Like the role of the ballot is that you should vote for the team that best opposes oppression. 
which you say in your article is definitely time to whip out the framework file. Um, and, you know, it's not even so much that I disagree that it's that some sort of theory argument will can be said. But to me, whenever the negative makes that roll of the ballot claim, it's so arbitrary that it's it's almost a non-starter in that if you're making the framing as opposed to framework, and what I mean is I've, I've talked about this on here before, instead of the theory argument, just the substantive arguments about why decision makers out of preference, you know, consequences before representations, for example. Um, it just seems to me that whenever those really arbitrary and, and abusive framework arguments come out that, yeah, you can bust out the theory argument. And I'm not saying that's never something that should be done, but I think more often than not, that argument's so arbitrary and, and self-serving that, you know, you can still just go for your framing argument about why, uh, no, um, our frame, our evidence here provides the explicit counterinterpretation with offense. It says the decision makers should vote on, on consequences, you know, which is an answer to their argument about who best opposes oppression. I just think that a lot of the examples outlined, uh, specifically with the role of the ballot and the prior questions arguments, which were two framework arguments you really took issue with for the negative. I think that both of those um, are generally almost always implicitly and often explicitly answered by the substantive framing defenses that or the that the AF will read in the 2AC. Um, I guess kind of the the reason why I think the AF has to be a little bit more careful on that is kind of one the thing that you cited in the conditionality the like you don't have a counter interpretation. I think I've seen a lot of judges who when the AF is or the NAG or whoever is like the role of the ballot is X and the other team kind of reads like you know Gooden or Isaac or whatever we should evaluate utility. They'll, you know, be like, well, you didn't have a counterinterpretation, kind of explicit, but that, uh, so I do agree with you that, you know, reading evidence can implicitly answer these things, but I think that a lot of teams kind of prey on it being kind of quote unquote conceded and then making a big deal about that either in the block or in the two and R. Um, the second thing that I would say is that I think that one thing that maybe I didn't put across very clearly in that article is that I think a lot of these roll of the ballot claims, rely on a, a fundamental shift about what question the judge is deciding. And so a lot of them rely on, you know, the this the debate doesn't leave the room, fiat not real kind of you know, Oh God, you know how I feel old about that school shtick. So it's like when you say, you know, we should, you know, vote for based on utility because you're a policymaker or whatever, their response to that will be, well, you're not a policymaker. Only our role of the ballot accounts for what you can actually do. What you can actually do is resist oppression, so therefore our thing is better. Like, you know, there's a couple of K teams in college who, you know, for, at least versus Emory, that was their kind of explicit strategy was to kind of explain what I just said in kind of an unclear way and then slowly make it more explicit as the debate went on, such that all of the arguments we made that were either about the plan or the advantages they would try and say weren't applicable because they didn't have an effect in the room. Yeah, and I, I think this is something else, though. Um, so what you're talking about, then, may, maybe here's a way that we could b both sort of frame it that would be helpful for for debaters to understand. You, Whenever you say the framework argument, you're pretty much explicitly talking about the sort of uh, arguments that are mostly based in competitive equity. Um, and what I'm envisioning here is that the arguments in favor of the education 
at least this is how framework debates usually come down when I judge them. Arguments in favor of education. So like when the NAG says the debate doesn't leave the room, they're essentially saying that there's no value to anything that you've said because it's not real. So if you have a substantive as opposed to theoretical defense of the pedagogical benefits of what you're talking about, you know, like the teams that read the the, the substantive cards on framework uh, that defend why we should debate about and teach about people about um, immigration policy. See, I think that's another place where you've probably already read substantive cards in the 2AC. At least you should be, uh, assuming that it's a real left DK team, because the argument you're talking about is rarely deployed by your run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, cap K or security K team. But you, you definitely need to, in the 2AC, also read substantive arguments in defense of the educational benefits. So even if you're advocating the reading of the framework argument in terms of how that's cheating, um, I think that's fine. But I would still warn teams that you're going to have to couple that with some sort of substance, substantive uh, evidence-based reason as to why there are educational benefits of your interpretation are also good. Well, even that... Um, a lot of, a lot of teams will try and weasel out of like, you know, you're either, you know, I guess like the most generic example is like, it's good to role play because then we learn about roles or whatever the (laughs) hell your argument is, you know, about why kind of the way you spoke about things was a good idea. You know, they'll try and weasel out of even those just like really generic things by saying, you know, it doesn't assume this context or it doesn't assume this topic specifically and kind of like blah, blah, blah. So I guess like my, my main point was that it's oftentimes so difficult to win those kind of substantive arguments because the neg will constantly shift the goalpost. Yes. And, but here, this is the last uh, thing that I would take issue with though, and that I agree with that. But where we differ is, and I experience this all the time in, in our college district. Oh, my God, dude. Debate doesn't leave the room. It's like a silver bullet at, in, for in front of some judges in, in the district that uh, – in our college district, um, which brings me to this point. If you have a judge that's actually going to let the negative get away with that and uh, in any sense, that they would even find that acceptable for the negative to continue to do from speech to speech – Man, I, I don't see how the framework argument's going to get their ballot because it seems like they've pretty much already checked in that there's no constraint on the negative whatsoever. Whereas it sounds like the kind of judge you should be reading the framework argument in front of is some line by line, uh, oriented judge more, um, or, you know, someone real technical and open to, to, to all different kinds of theory arguments. Someone who's not ideologically biased for the K against framework. Um, well, they're probably already going to be on your side in the sense that the negative has shifted their argument <laughs> in three or four consecutive speeches. So I, I guess for me it was just uh, in practice. I think a lot of times when when you hit these situ- these extreme situations that you outline, um, it's you know it's probably if it's reached to the point to where you don't think you can win without unleashing a framework argument, it's probably because the judge is letting them get away with so much that the framework argument might not even help you at that point. Well, I think that like there's a difference between like you're in the wrong forum critiques are bad and just kind of the like argument you were getting at before that the neg shouldn't get just like arbitrary dumbass standards. Right. And I think that even judges who were like, you know, total K hacks 
will still vote on the just like arbitrary garbage is bad. Yes. That it it's it's okay to challenge the idea that debate is only about USFG policy making, but it's not okay to just like randomly pick something out of the air and be like, this is the sole question of the ballot. Uh, I I would agree with that. Uh, I guess maybe whenever I heard you talking about busting out the framework, I was thinking of something you know a little more developed. But what it sounds like that what you're talking about is actually just a very short set of arguments, or maybe even just a pointing out. You, you know, I don't mean to say pointing out is like just mention it, but you know, talking about the uh, either making it a short theory argument, which sounds to be what you're suggesting, or the other way that I would approach it is kind of along the lines of what I was saying earlier, which is to just tie it into the substantive um, arguments you've already made. So to go back to the you, – you said a lot of judges vote on well, you don't have a counterinterpretation to roll the ballot. Well, for me, instead of a theory argument, it would just be when you get to your consequences or your epistemology or your ontology answers, wherever they are, just, just in passing as you go for those arguments, say that that's your counterinterpretation or assert it as a counterinterpretation uh, or for the example that – um, you just gave where the goalpost kind of shifts, the debate doesn't leave the room. Just make sure that when you extend your substantive arguments that are defenses of the educational benefits of your interpretation, that you also mention that <laughs> that those are, in fact, answers to, um, you know, the debate doesn't leave the room, which is kind of very similar to what we were talking about before. before is it, I guess a lot of judges just have certain arguments like that or like T where they're a little nitpicky and they really want you to explicitly reference things. Whereas it sounds like in these issues, at least me, and it seems like you to some degree, we're willing to just sort of say, like, this is so clearly, this is so obviously an answer that I don't really think you need to highlight this as a counterinterpretation when that's that's clearly the only thing it could be. Well, I guess let me give you an example and let's see kind of either what you think a better argument is or uh what you think is going on here that's wrong um, that you would counter. So I, I judged a debate in high school where basically the AF was like, we should withdraw from Afghanistan uh, because the U.S. force just causes instability in the region. And they didn't have like really an extinction impact or anything. They had some like cards about civilian casualties and then some just general like Afghanistan will be unstable and that kind of causes a regional conflict. But no real crazy like draws in Russia, U.S., China, and Duke War, none, nothing really like that. Yeah. Okay, so the NAG is like security K. It's bad to talk about Afghanistan instability. Talking about Afghanistan instability is the root cause of intervention. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the AF is like, well, one, we explicitly advocate withdrawal. So even if in other instances instability rhetoric is bad, in this particular instance, it's good. And then two, they kind of had some like, you know, our card said this. That's not really the rhetoric you're talking about. Your evidence assumes like large scale escalation impacts. So they kind of try to differentiate their kind of like smaller, more reasonable impact from the kind of like crazy usual debate impacts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So the negatives like in the 2NC, they're like the role of the ballot is to, you know, individually resist imperialism. The AF's not in a position to put the plan into effect. So the plan's effect on imperialism are totally irrelevant. It's only the discourse they use. Even though the AF uses this discourse in a good way, someone else could use this discourse in a bad way. And so that's problematic. You should reject it. So the AF comes back and is like, uh, you know, we should role play as the federal government. That's key to, like, educating citizens, dot, dot, dot. And the NAG was basically like, look, 
educating citizens doesn't best resist imperialism, so it doesn't fit in our role of the ballot. You don't get access to any of this offense because it's not in our little mini interpretation. And then the 2AR just kind of like flustered about and boned it. So, but it, are but you it sounds that like that... you didn't need a theory argument at that point for you to vote against the the neg, though. It sounds like if the F would have just made a few substantive arguments, you would have been all on board. Well, I guess what my point was that the F kind of in response to each negative argument prior to the 2AR boning it, the NAG made an argument and the AF responded with like a pretty reasonable substantive claim. The response to which from the negative was to kind of shift the goalpost and make the debate such that that argument was seemingly irrelevant, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, and I, I, I know what you mean. Okay, so what I'm saying is that what the AF needs to do is aggressively start off the debate with like a framework argument based in kind of fairness or theory that like you can get critiques that are reasonably fair and otherwise, you know, you don't get it, that in order to hedge back against all these kind of like neg shenanigans, because trying to re- react to each way the neg changes the debate is like way too defensive and just like hard to do. Yeah, a lot of debates that I judge, uh, the good F teams, just, I guess these, these arguments don't become very necessary because the best affirmative teams get this out in the cross X of the one and C. Um, you know, you don't you don't ask questions like, why did your roll of the ballot? But figuring out the negatives, uh, impact preference, you know, why should we preference the impacts? R- really, every negative framework is a reason for why you should preference negative impacts before affirmative impacts. And, um, most of the good AF teams against the K that I judge get that out early in the debate. Once the negative puts it out there in cross X, I really think that it's an uphill battle for them to keep shifting in front of, um, most judges. So, I guess that the – this kind of just gets back to what I said before, though. I, I agree that it, there might be some strategic benefit to having the explicit and aggressive framework argument early in the debate. But it, if you're in front of a judge that is, again, going to just allow the negative to keep doing that every speech you know, and never and never intervene in any – well, I don't want to use the word intervene. But if you're in front of a judge that's going to give the neg that kind of flexibility – the framework argument might be limited uh, in its utility for you. But the the more in-round reason, though, is that it, a lot of times the when people run the really explicit and aggressive framework arguments, it honestly gives the negative a lot more ways to generate offense in the block that they didn't really necessarily have before because, like in your example, the AF says that they withdraw. So they're obviously, you know, anti-imperialism. But if then they then get up and read some framework that says that anything that's not, you know, focused on USFG policymaking should be rejected and excluded from, you know, from the forum of debate, um, then, uh, you know, that's going to give the negative a lot more leeway in the sort of new block case that they can read and the new kind of link arguments they can make. So it sounds like what you want affirmatives to do is be very specific in the way that they bring their interpretation out. Like you don't want them to just say debate should be about plan or competitive policy option and that only, right? No, I think that argument's awful. Okay. <laughs> okay, it makes a lot more sense if, if affirmatives are diligent and take your advice to make their interpretation of the framework argument very specific to the kinds of alternatives the negative can run, then uh, I, I, I definitely think that that could capture – I definitely think 
uh, <laughs> I think that that could capture the the best of both worlds, and that you might get some some leverage in preventing the negative from shifting. And if you can minimize your interpretation enough, then I think you could do it to get out of most of those block Ks. But you have judged debates like that before, where the neg will read all these new Ks in the block because of the framework argument. Yeah, you mean like every K debate ever? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. But I mean, sometimes sometimes the new Ks are at least relevant to the old K, like there's security links to that or something. But then sometimes there's just like whole new <laughs> Ks that the negative will read in the block because of it. Well, I think that part of it is that I think the neg, you were like, you know, get it out in cross X. I think a lot of negs purposefully slow play roll the ballot kind of arguments until the block. Yeah, and, you know, but can't you always, and I guess this is another benefit we have of judging. Uh, so I do have sympathy that the debaters can't see it, but damn, I can see it every time sitting back there. And, you know, a couple of times I've pulled the Dallas Perkins and just uh, been like, no, this that didn't answer. This is what they were asking. And I've just explicitly told the native team, like, you should probably actually answer this question. Because I, I see what you're saying there. I've seen a lot of apps just totally – it was obvious that the negative was being particularly evasive or vague about a certain issue, wording it in such a way, and then the app just didn't say anything. Or even more so, like, um, you know, the one in C, like on the Visa K, I saw this a lot, where, you know, the one in C was almost like a DA, where it was like visas are biopolitical, biopower causes extinction. And then in the 2NC, they would have some kind of like, you know, the role of the ballot is to be a specific intellectual, which wasn't really, you know, in the tag or text of any of the 1NC evidence. And I think in those kind of instances, you know, obviously the AF can then come back and start framework style arguments in the 1AR, but it just kind of hurts them that they have to, you know, start from scratch on that point. Uh, I yes, that that's true. But again, this is why I, I, most of the successful AF teams that I judge against the K are good at taking those generic sets of well, not not hyper generic, but those f- core sets of two AC offense. For instance, like their defense of positivism, their defense of you know representations, or their defense of economic discourse. Those sets of arguments. Wait, that they you get judge out. teams that defended those things? Uh, yes. Uh, surprisingly I do judge um, teams that say stuff like that but those are the arguments that I think that the app should really focus on is really what I'm saying here when they're going to answer the K because if you have those arguments prepared then no matter what the negative says on the block you know those thing, those arguments are going to be answers to it like if you win that positivism is good you have answered like two thirds you've answered most every K that I judge and debate except for the cap K um, you know, so examples like that, but that's substantive offense. I just think it's so much easier if you learn to start from that point in the 2AC to then explain those arguments as explicit answers so that the neg spends all this time explaining this new role of the ballot, uh, but they never actually spend time explaining why your offense is bad. So all you, they're, they're, the neg is going all in on your offense doesn't apply. Not that your offense is invalid or that it's wrong in some way, just that it doesn't apply to their alternative. So I just think well, that learning I mean, to, we, to prove just, that it let's does Let's just apply. do a little hypothetical here. 
because uh, I want to see how you would explain this. So I'm <laughs> I'm I'm Neg and I'm debating you. You you lost the flip. So you have, yeah. Okay, and you said you know we should let H1B people in because blah 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 competitiveness. Okay, and I was like critique of economic rationales for immigration. Okay, so now in your 2AC you say. Economic security, good. Positivism, good. Anything else? Economic – we must use economic rhetoric. Economic rhetoric is good. Okay. So now in the 2NC, I'm like, the role of the ballot is the judge is a social activist. This is the only way to make debate meaningful. People in the real world aren't convinced by economic justifications because they don't understand them. They're ignorant. So the AF doesn't get access to any of this offense about why economic justifications for immigration are good. And we have a real-world impact that their discourse, like, is exploitative and hurts the value to life of immigrants. Now, how do you explain why the stuff you read in the 2AC still makes sense in that framework? Well, I'm probably just going to concede after that devastating block you just gave. Uh, uh, so you're going to do what you actually did? <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, well, first I think that if you're reading defenses of the of why we should teach people to use economic discourse – then that's probably going to be an explicit answer to their argument about how people can't access it. Therefore, because they're the result of that argument, when you say people can't access it, is um, then we shouldn't teach it. And you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that since I cut awesome cards, that my economic discourse good arguments are going to be talking about the necessity of teaching people economic discourse. So I think that just because they win – so let's go with the social activist role of the ballot. Uh, first, all of your educational benefits means that those are just things that we should learn about if we want to be truly good social activists. There's nothing unique about the role of the ballot social activists that means that positivism um, – economic rationality and economic discourse are bad. Your only argument was that people in the status quo don't know about them. That's a uniqueness argument for our interpretation that we should teach people about those values. Well, I guess what the neg would probably say is that winning the truth of those claims doesn't necessarily defend their utility. Like science can be true. That doesn't make Whit Whitmore believe global warming is real. Oh, well, yeah, but I, if you're defending positivism good, I don't think you just want to say that it's accurate. I think that the best cards that defend that positivism is good are the ones that talk about how it forces uh, forces us to question hypothesis and be big critical thinkers to actually criticize policy. So the Whit- Whitmore example is just a reason why you should embrace the positivist values that we base our research on in the 1AC because um, – even if Whit- Whitmore can't be convinced that global warming is real from positivism, that's not a reason that positivism is bad. That's a reason that Whit- Whitmore is bad, you know. And arguments like that, <laughs> and arguments like that, honestly, make sense to me as a judge when I'm judging K debates because what's the most common stupid argument that Neg deploys uh, when the AF reads an impact? Well, if someone said that racism was ism was bad, you know, then. That wouldn't – or just because other people are going to be racist doesn't mean that it's okay for us to be racist. Well, a lot of times their answers like you're making on the framework are kind of the same thing. They're like, well, the people who are the worst people in the world don't listen to this, so why should we do it? It's like, well, you know, those people are stupid. So <laughs> it's just <laughs> – it kind of goes 
it kind of cuts both ways. You get what I'm saying, though, that there's always this double play with the negative framework where they they just kind of ignore the real world when it comes to assessing their impacts. Like, oh, it doesn't matter that they aren't unique, but then they want you to have uniqueness on the framework argument because they'll be like, oh, people people don't access it, so <laughs> you don't get it. No, yeah. One of the things that drove me up the wall this year is we lost a bunch of debates where, like, we read, like, five or six social science defenses of why, like, hegemonic stability theory was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neg would just kind of read one, like, nonsense card, like, it's not blah, 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 cultural theory. But then the neg would win, like, the full weight of their burn hour or whatever stupid impact <laughs> about biopower causing extinction, which has no epistemological backup provided whatsoever, <laughs> let alone five or six of them. <laughs> Oh, I love that. The internal link is, uh, as we've discussed many times, the internal link is definitely a place where uh, one place the 2AC really needs to be aggressive against the K, um, the alternative always, but the internal link especially. Like how – okay, so you have this generic security card that says that world ordering leads to extinction. Um, I'm running a D-Alert app that says that my only advantage is accidental war. From an accidental launch. Could you explain to me how the world ordering of the plan somehow results in extinction? You know, just well, you're not in a position to actually deal or weapons. <laughs> I know. I love. I love that. I what I want to know is when the negative makes all these debate doesn't leave the room arguments. What argument do they think that the AF is running that the AF actually believes is predicated on the debate leaving the room? <laughs> like where? Why, why do they think this is even a point of disagreement? No, no one goes – I think you just don't get it. You haven't <laughs> understood the next argument yet. Yeah, I love how the debate doesn't leave the room, but the impact's extinction. <laughs> oh, I love it. And by love it, I mean I hate it and frequently give it 27 vibes. That's pretty good. <laughs> Perhaps. All right. Well, we're over the hour, hour mark here, so unless you have anything uh, crucial to add to this framework discussion, I think we'll wrap it up. No, I think that we have firmly established with the uh, youth of the debate community that we are crotchety old men. Uh, I don't think that was ever in question. <laughs> Fair enough. You realize people debating at the TOC were like 10 years older than <laughs> them, like, about to be extinct. <laughs> oh, man, that's so true. All right. Well, this has been another 3NR podcast uh, with Scott Phillips and Malcolm Gordon. Uh, Thank you for listening.